Yeah, just stay up there. Y'all aren't going nowhere today. Yeah. Good to see you. I'm a little concerned at how perfectly my wife matches Willie Ray today. Do y'all see that? <laughs> There's something so not right about that, man. They look awesome together. Uh, oh, well, happy Mother's Day anyway. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. So good to see you this morning. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church in the Overflow. God bless you guys. Uh, delighted to worship with you in Perry, Oklahoma. Oh, my goodness. I miss you guys. Love you so much. Uh, open your Bibles. Exodus chapter 4. Now in a sermon series entitled Mountain Man, sermons from the life of Moses. And we're going to jump right in here to a part of the story that we usually skip, a passage that's not often read. Uh, you're going to find out for obvious reasons, but I hope you'll just be patient and bear with me. This is a passage that's a little awkward in places. Hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your husbands, but, but we will get right right through it, I promise, because it's important, it's important. Because what we're looking at right here is the passage in between. It's a passage in between when Moses comes face to face with the living God at the burning bush and before he follows the Lord's leading all the way to Egypt and sets the children of Israel free. It's the space in between. And honestly, it's in those spaces in between where lots of times uh, some of us lose it. It's in the spaces in between where we give up. It's in the spaces in between where things start to cost more spiritually than we thought they would cost. It's when uh, the real change starts to take place, and many of us really struggle with the change. But make no mistake, if you come face-to-face with the living God, you're going to be changed. You understand? I mean, do you know God? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you know him? Because if you have met him, you're going to somehow resonate with what Moses goes through in, in, in these verses. Last few weeks, I've been reading through a, a book by a woman named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. It's an awesome name, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She was a, a leftist, a lesbian, a university professor. She taught at Syracuse. She was an English professor, also an, a scholar in, in what's called queer studies, a, a gay, lesbian, a transgender, all of that. She was a keynote speaker in a lot of, uh, of the GLAD parades, uh, gay pride parades. She was a very moral person, I would say that, and very kind and hospitable. Uh, and also she thought that she had made up her mind completely about, about God and certainly about, about Christ. She had no interest. She was uh, agnostic, uh, living her life, and for the most part, a very negative view of Christians and, and the Christian message. But but you just need to read her book. You need to read her stories. She describes her conversion. She'll use that word because she is converted. She, she really comes to know Jesus in, in, in a big way. But, but she says that the word conversion is, is, is too tame of a word for what she calls the train wreck of coming face to face with the living God. Let that sink in. The, the train wreck of coming face to face with the living God. Her entire life changed dramatically, and we all know that that's what's supposed to happen. The scripture says if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation, a new creature. Absolutely, the old is gone, the new has come. But, but, But many of us, honestly, though we call ourselves Christians, we've never experienced anything like that train wreck that that Rosaria Butterfield talks about. And honestly, some of us, we, we talk about Christ, but there's no real change in us at all. 
the life that we always have lived is the life that we still live and yet we call ourselves Christians. I just want to bring you back to this part of Moses' story to let you see that after the burning bush, there is something of a train wreck for Moses. And I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss that impact of God upon his life. It's, it's, it's messy. And it gets messy right in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. Again, I remind you, what we've just had for nearly two chapters is Moses at the burning bush. Moses standing before God, trembling and, and blinded by God's blazing holiness. Now, here's the train wreck that follows. So Moses went back home to Jethro, his father-in-law. Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt, Moses said. I don't even know if they are still alive. Go in peace, Jethro replied. Before Moses left Midian, the Lord said to him, Return to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you have died. Okay, that's an interesting verse. Stop right there. Because pay attention in a moment to who wants to kill Moses. Just tuck that away. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and headed back to the land of Egypt. In his hand, he carried the staff of God. And the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Then, then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. On the way to Egypt at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted Moses and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with the foreskin and said, Now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. When she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. And after that, the Lord released him, left him alone. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go out into the wilderness to meet Moses. So Aaron went and met Moses at the mountain of God, and he embraced him. Moses then told Aaron everything the Lord had commanded him to say, and he told him about the miraculous signs the Lord God had commanded him to perform. Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. It's difficult anytime you come face to face with the living God. Anytime God begins to work in your heart, because understand at first that's always kind of secret. It's secret. Now, I recognize that some of you in this house don't have any idea what I'm talking about. I recognize that, but I believe most of you do. Most of you have had this kind of experience with, with a real living God, and you know, you know that once you meet him, you'll never be the same. You know that. But you know that that change is difficult. It's a train wreck. Like Rosaria Butterfield says, it's, it, it's a kind of 
train wreck. The, the, the old passes away, the new has come. But it's very, very difficult to change like that. Now, at first, it's, it's kind of a secret. What, what, what Christ has done in your heart, what, what he's telling you is, is secret, and nobody knows about that. And so for many of us, there's a time when we kind of keep that secret. We just sort of stew on that for a while, and God continues to work inside our heart, and we don't tell anybody for a while. But, but going public is an important first step, and at some point you have to start letting people know. Now, that's difficult. Let me tell you, if you've never been through this, this is the difficult part. When you become a new believer, when you become a Christian, or when God wants to do something brand new in your life, or, or, or when suddenly you're convicted of your sin and you need to leave your sin and live a different kind of life, that's hard. But, but telling others is one of the hardest parts. Jesus, with his disciples, said to them, he said, well, what I tell you in the darkness, you proclaim, you broadcast when the daylight comes. And what I whisper in your ear in secret, you shout from the housetops. So see, this is where Moses is now. He was at the burning bush. God has said something amazing to Moses, but only to Moses. You understand this? Nobody else was there. Nobody else saw what Moses saw. Nobody else heard what Moses heard. And now Moses has to begin going and, and beginning the process of living a whole different life. I mean, do you understand this? This is an 80-year-old man. An 80-year-old man. Now, 40 years ago, he had some indication that God had some plan for his life. 40 years ago, he had this sense of destiny. He did believe, according to Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts, Moses actually knew when he was about 40 that, that God wanted him to deliver the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Moses knew that at some point when he was younger, but, but nothing happened. 40 years ago, Moses tried to take things in his own hand, but nothing happened. And now for, for 40 years since, he's lived in, in, in kind of an exile. A, a prince of Egypt now tending sheep for his father-in-law on the backside of the desert. Do you understand? It's been 40 years since he's thought about these things. 40 years since he's revisited this call of God on his life. But, but now he has come face to face with God. And God speaking out of this burning bush has told him, I'm sending you. I'm going with you. You're the one. How do you begin? How do you begin to tell other people what God's doing in your life? Apparently, the first person Moses goes to is his father-in-law. I don't know about that for sure. It's hard to imagine that he didn't first go to his wife, Zipporah, but we'll come back to her. He goes to Jethro, his father-in-law, and Jethro's been very, very good to Moses. Not only did he give him his daughter, and not only has he been a grandfather to Moses and Zipporah's two sons, but Jethro pretty much adopted Moses, too. He's been working for him for four decades. We don't know a lot about Jethro. He has several different names in the Old Testament, but he's always called the priest of Midian, a, a, a priest. Now, when you hear priest, you're thinking, oh, well, Jethro must be a man of God. He must be a man who knows God like Moses knows God. He must be a priest of God, but... But I don't know about that, and, and nobody's very sure, but, but my hunch is he's not a priest of Moses' as God. It's just my hunch. 
from what we're going to read in this passage, for one thing, but from other clues, he's more likely some sort of pagan priest, probably a a polytheist, which means he probably worships and acknowledges many gods. But but he's some sort of priest. He's some sort of spiritual man, very close to Moses now, his father-in-law. And somehow Moses goes first to Jethro to let him know what God has been saying to him in, in his heart. But But notice the conversation, and you kind of rate this. Again, Moses is going public now with what God wants him to do, and Jethro's man number one, so here's what he says. Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt. I don't even know if they're alive or dead. How did he do? I mean, if you're going public with what God has called you to do, how's that? He got the part about going to Egypt in there. He left out the whole part about God. Just kind of says, Jethro, you know, hey, hey Daddy, uh, listen, I'm going to take the wife. We haven't had a vacation in 40 years, so um, I'm going to take the wife. The kids have kind of been wanting to see the pyramids. And uh, I'm going to take the wife and kids, and we're going to go to Egypt. I, I may, may stay at my sister's. She could be dead, but... but uh, Tell me what size, t- I'll bring you a King Tut t-shirt. You just tell me what size you, you, you wear. Um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't spill it all there. He, he, he leaves out the whole part about God. Before you judge him, acknowledge how hard that is. Again, I'm asking you, have you, have you been there? Have you ever tried to talk about deeply spiritual things? with people and you're not sure they'll understand there's a real danger in it because first off what if you're wrong I mean Moses at this point has this audacious calling from God and he's he's kind of known it all of his life but but for all of his life there's nothing that's confirmed that nothing that's ever pointed him in this direction and and now the the bush on fire but but what if he's wrong about that you understand I mean if it really is God in the bush then Moses is going to be okay this is going to be awesome but if it wasn't God in the bush somehow then Moses is just crazy he's just crazy and honestly since nobody else saw God in the bush Moses is just gonna sound crazy just like any time when you've tried to talk to family or you've tried to talk to your old friends about Christ you just sort of feel crazy you know what you're saying is true you know what you've seen and you know what you've heard but they haven't necessarily seen and heard what you've seen and heard and it just makes you sound crazy you're not crazy but, but you feel crazy, and Moses, at this moment, give him a kind of a break. I don't know exactly how you explain these things to your father-in-law after 40 years of tending his sheep. How could you begin to say, I- I'm going to be the deliverer of all of the children of Israel in Egypt. I'm going down, and I'm going to talk to Pharaoh. What? Jethro hasn't seen and heard what Moses is seen and heard and you know the other thing once you tell people then you're committed once you tell people then you're committed 
Once you say, I'm going to be a different kind of man, I'm going to be living a different kind of life. Once you say that, then you're expected to do that. Once you say, God has called me, God has called me to, to be a missionary, or God has called me to be a pastor, or God is calling me to, to, to speak to my neighbors about Christ. Once you say that out loud, you understand, you, you, you're committed now in a different kind of way. And, and there's some people who read this passage and they question whether or not Moses is fully committed yet. Just based on the way he talks to Jethro here, based on the difficulty of, of, of assuming a task like this, some people wonder if at this point Moses is fully committed. I don't know. I imagine that he is. But notice, Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and must have been a big donkey, and, and headed back to the land of Egypt. In his hand, he carried the staff of God. Now notice this part, verse 21, and the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh. I love this conversation because when you're wrestling with God, when you're, when you're listening to God's voice, it's, 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 it's just amazing how God begins to, to occupy your thoughts your heart just almost 24 hours a day. And, and this is what Moses is experiencing now. I mean, he's going through all the motions of, of this gigantic move of his family. He's got his wife and his sons now, and his sons are grown, understand. He, he's got his family together, and they're making their way to Egypt. But Moses is with them and not with them because in his head, this is what he hears. This is what's going on in his head. The Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn, and I commanded you to let my son go. Since you have refused, now I will kill your firstborn son. And, and this is what Moses hears. It's this amazing conversation that never stops going back and forth between Moses and God. And I love that. I, I, I experience this. Do you? I mean, just these conversations with God where God talks to me, not, not audibly, but in my heart, I, I, I know his voice, and, and God tells me things to do, and, and tells me things that he wants me to do, and things that he's going to do for me, and it's just this amazing kind of partnership, and I want you to see that, that there's a real partnership here, and in some ways, it's, it's beyond our understanding because we all know that God doesn't need Moses. God doesn't need me for that matter or you. God can do anything he wants any way he wants and he doesn't need us. He just doesn't. God could set the children of Israel free in any way that he wanted to do so. He, he could just do it. And, and yet God goes all the way to Midian and chooses Moses off the backside of that desert. God wants to use Moses. And it's a real partnership, and you need to understand this. It's a real partnership. God is, is giving some things over to Moses here. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that Moses is going to help God kind of like, anybody ever raise kids? Let's say you're in the kitchen, and you're, and you're making a cake, and you're stirring, and you're trying to get this thing done by lunchtime, and you're stirring the cake, and your kid comes up and says, Mama, can I help? And what are you thinking? You in this kitchen is the last thing I need right now. Now what you're thinking? I mean, if you really want to help me, go outside. You know, 
At our house, when we were raising our son, we called it unhelp. You know what I mean? You know how your kid can unhelp you? It means when they're actually trying to help you, they're really just in your way. They're trying to help. They're really just messing things up because this is what happens when you give responsibility to someone who's really too small for it. That's why when you're baking the cake and you're stirring and your kid says, Mama, can I help you? You say, sure, you can help. Sure, of course you can help. And then you give her like a little bowl and say, here, stir this. Just an empty bowl. Stir You stand right over here. You're really going to help Mama. You just stir in this bowl. In other words, you just give her nothing to do just to get her over there. And you say, oh, your, oh, your mama's a helper. You just keep stirring in that bowl. Yeah. And even the kid knows she ain't doing nothing. So you throw some chocolate chips in the bowl thinking she'll just eat chocolate chips and forget to stir. But, but the bottom line is she's mama's little helper, but the whole, the whole aim of this is to keep her out of your way because mama don't need help. And I promise you, if mama don't need help, God doesn't need help either doesn't need anything from us. God is not waiting for us. He's not dependent upon us in any way. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God can handle it. And yet, and this is the mind-blowing mystery of God, and yet, it somehow delights him to involve us in his work. Not just in the here, you stand or you stir, your God's going to help you. So you stir in this bowl over here. God doesn't give you some sort of made-up imaginary job to do to make you feel special. He gives you the real job, you understand? He doesn't give you the play tools. He gives you the chainsaw, baby, you understand? He puts power in your hands, and he gives you a job to do. And this is not play-acting. God and Moses are genuine partners here. This is a genuine partnership, and it's amazing, and it's very difficult to understand that God in his sovereignty would actually turn some things over to a human being like Moses or me or you, but God will do that. And when he does that, you know there's a risk involved. God could do this quicker. God could do this more simply. God could do this in some ways better without us. Moses is going to slow this whole machine down. Do you know this? And God's going God's to watch Moses mess some things up. But somehow to God, it's, it's worth it. Somehow for God, there's more glory, more glory that comes to God when he will step down and, and use us, empower us. So all the way to Egypt, God is talking to Moses. He's, he's sharing information with him. And notice that there are certain things that God says, now I'll say this, but then you say this. And, and, and I'll do this part, but then you're going to do this part. This is a real partnership. And I know some, of, some people, their theology won't allow for this, but, but we're reading the Bible here. And this is real. God is going to involve Moses in his mission in the world. And Moses is not superfluous in this. Do you understand? He's not beside the point. He's not unimportant in this. And, and neither is Moses' family. This is the really hard part. And I apologize for this portion of Scripture. If it alarms some of you, I'll try not to paint a picture for you. But there in verse 24, when it says, On the way to Egypt at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him, was about to kill him. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to 
how to deal with that. Um, This passage is, is like what happened to Jacob when he also is camped out at night and, and, and God just leaps out of the darkness and wrestles him. You know that story? It's the very same kind of picture. This is a physical manifestation of God who, who somehow leaps out of the darkness and, and, and takes Moses in, in, a, in a death grip. It is a literal deadly grip, pins him down. All I can figure is that this is about Zipporah. It must be about Zipporah. If there was something that God wanted to to, to work out in Moses, I mean, God's been talking to Moses now all of this time. If if, if something had come back on Moses' background check, do you understand? It would have already been mentioned by God. It's it's what makes me think that this is about Zipporah. This is about Moses' wife. She's the only one who acts in this episode, and she's the only one who speaks. It's about circumcision. Ask your daddy. Um, It's about circumcision, which from the time of Abraham was a command of God with the covenant, with the agreement with God's people. The command was that all of your male children will be circumcised and anyone not circumcised will be cut off from the people of God. This isn't just, it it is an outward sign of belonging to God, but, but the obedience is necessary. In, in the old covenant it's not an optional thing you understand and somehow Moses and Zipporah have reached this point in their lives again they've been married about 40 years so th- their, their children are not babies their sons are not babies these are, these are grown men but only one of their sons has been circumcised this is what we learn in this passage only one We don't know which one exactly, but, and we don't know why they didn't circumcise the other one. But I get an idea from this passage that it's got something to do with Zipporah. If they only circumcised one, I mean, just think with me. If they only circumcised one, chances are they circumcised the first one, Gershom the oldest one. Chances are Moses circumcised his first son. But what we can learn from this passage is that Zipporah hates this. She despises this ritual. She despises the circumcision. She despises having her son mutilated in this way. She despises this. That's clear. My hunch is that after the circumcision of Gershom, Zipporah said, no, you will never do that to another one of my children. You will never mutilate another one of my sons. It's it's the only thing I can figure because I I believe that this episode is about Zipporah and less about Moses, and it really seems like this is kind of a defining moment for her. Now, I I don't understand. I I get the idea here that, that somehow Moses had not talked about all these things with Zipporah, or at least they never learned to agree about these things. I I just don't know. All I know is Moses, this man who God has had his hand on from birth, is now married to this daughter of of what I believe is probably a pagan priest. And, And I don't know how Zipporah feels about Moses or his God, but at the end of this story, she rejects them both. Do you see that? Just bottom line, let me back off a little bit and say one thing, especially to all of you who are single, especially young people. Uh, When it comes to serving the Lord, 
When it comes to your spiritual life, one of the most important decisions you will ever make is whom you marry. One of the most important decisions you will ever make in serving the Lord is that person you marry. You choose very, very carefully. It's amazing how picky people can be, especially these days, how picky young people are when they're just wanting to go out on a date or just thinking about somebody to marry. Very, very picky in some matters. I heard one woman say, I just don't think I could marry a man who wears those short black socks. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. One guy said, you know, I looked at her and she was just beautiful. She's just beautiful. Then she turned around and I thought, oh my goodness, dirty elbows. Can't be with a woman with dirty elbows. Wow. Really, really picky. Really picky we are about things that don't matter, but, but then we seem very, very leaning on the things that actually do matter. And, and, and it's troubling. Troubling. I had a father say to me, listen, Brother Tim, my son's dating a girl of another race. I said, is she a Christian? He said, what's that matter? Well, it's the only thing that does matter. It, it would be the only thing that matters. You understand? I mean, the person whom you're going to marry is going to influence you, and you're going to be yoked to this person for the rest of your life. So choose very, very wisely. She may have dirty elbows, but if she has a heart that seeks after God, marry that girl. Marry that girl. You can buy her a bar of soap. <laughs> marry that girl. He may wear short black socks and be the biggest dork ever, but if that man has a heart that seeks after God, marry that guy, marry that guy. You can lose his socks in the dryer. <laughs> but you can't change his heart. So somehow Moses is married to Zipporah, and when it comes to spiritual things, they're not together. They're not together. So on the way to Egypt here, this is a point where Zipporah's got to decide. And so I don't understand this. I just don't. But God comes out and just pins Moses to the ground. This is a physical, violent, brutal manifestation of God's presence. He has Moses pinned down, and somehow Zipporah knows exactly what God wants. Did you see that? She knows exactly what God is demanding here, obedience. And she actually gives God what he wants. She does exactly what God wants, but she despises it. She despises it. And in that moment, she finishes the deed. She throws the bloody tissue, and then she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And honestly, we don't know if she's talking to God or Moses. Bridegroom of And this is the point where Zipporah turns back. She doesn't go to Egypt, you understand? She, she's not there from then on. This is the point where God's impact on Moses' life separates him. Zipporah's not going to be beside him as he does God's will. She's not going to be there. She turns back at it's just part of the train wreck for Moses. You understand how I'm using that word? I, I, I don't mean it's altogether negative, but, 
but it's messy and it's painful. I mean, when God impacts your life, I mean, it's, it's an impact. It's not some little gentle, warm, religious kind of thing. I mean, when God impacts your life, it's, it's like a collision, like, a, like an automobile collision with a body count. Do you understand? It, it is dramatic. When Paul and Jesus later talk about what it's going to be to come to Christ, to experience salvation in him, to be converted, the closest thing they can use to describe it would be death. It's, it, it's, it's like dying. So, so my question for you is, is about the impact of God in your life. I mean, so many of us, so many of us talk about being saved and being converted and knowing the Lord. But, but honestly, where's the impact of God upon your life? At whatever point you, you met God, was there a change? I mean, was there a, a real turning from an old life? Because honestly, so many people continue to take the name of Jesus but live like the devil. You've got to understand that contradiction. You've got to understand that if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creature. Old things are passed away. And when those old things pass away, it's something like a death. It's something like a train wreck. I mean, there for a while, everything you know is gone. Somehow, in our preaching of salvation, we don't often prepare people for that train wreck of grace. That amazing, beautiful moment of collision when, when your life collides with God and His power and His grace and, and His mercy. You're not going to come out of that alive, the Scripture says. It's going to be something like a death. You're going to be slaughtered, slaughtered by His love. But, but at the same time, at that moment when you die, that's when your life begins. I mean, truly, this is what Scripture says. At that moment when your old life ends, a new life begins, but not one moment before. Do you understand that? Not one moment before. You have to allow him to change you, to convert you. You've got to let him take that old life away. You've got to turn from your sin. So Moses and Aaron went all the way to Egypt and called the elders of Israel together. Aaron told him everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. People of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery. The elders of Israel bowed down and worshiped. S something begins right there. Do you see that? Something begins there. But in order for that wonderful beginning to take place in Moses' life, other things have ended. He's never going back to Midian. You understand? He's never going back to shepherding Jethro's sheep. He's never going to be that man again. He's never going to live that life again. You could say in a lot of ways that the man Moses has always been has died. And at the moment when the old Moses died, new life begins. What I'm asking you to do is 
Look at the story of your own life. Think about what it means to come face to face with the living God. I just wonder what the impact on your life has been. What is the impact of God on your life? Anyone who comes face to face with the living God is going to be changed. Pray with me. Lord God, help us. So many of us, Lord, who say that we have met you live as if we don't know you, and that is a contradiction and a problem. So many of us, Lord, who say we have new life in you continue to live the old life, and that is a contradiction. So many of us, Lord, who say that we've read the Bible and we continue to go to church, we show no evidence of a genuine impact of your grace and your power and your love upon our lives. And the fact that we remain unchanged, unconverted, Lord Jesus, is a contradiction of the gospel. Lord Jesus, some of us just simply need to meet you, to know you. We simply need to put to death the person we've always been. We need to leave the life we've always lived. We need to be new people, and that is not in our power. Lord Jesus, you alone have the power to change our hearts. So change us, and then give us the courage to live a new life. Help us, Lord. Help us as we go back to our family and explain that we're not going to be the same daddy. Help us, Lord, as we go back to the person we've been sleeping with and explain that we're no longer going to be sleeping with them outside of marriage, Lord. Help us to go back to our drinking buddies and explain that we no longer are going to live that life. Lord, it's hard to go public with what you're saying to us in private, but Lord Jesus, give us the courage to change really change because you have work for us to do glorious amazing mission for us Lord to assume it's not pretend it's not a fake little job Lord you want us to do part of your work in the world so God speak to us call us change us set our hearts on fire Lord Jesus let us be instruments in your hand let us live for you and die to ourselves oh God I pray for married couples in this room Lord those that are unequally yoked Lord I pray for that husband who continues to pull Lord against that wife who does not want to serve you and I pray Lord for that wife who comes to church by herself half the time because she has a husband who doesn't want to serve you Lord Jesus I pray that husbands and wives will fall in love with you together and serve you together Lord, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds and not hold one another back by our selfishness. Oh, Lord Jesus, it's, it's a train wreck. When you come into our lives, Lord, everything is wrecked. Everything is wrecked. 
in the most wonderful way. Lord Jesus, today we seek a collision, a genuine, real collision of our lives, Lord, with with you and your power. Oh, Lord, you take our lives. You bury the old life, Lord, and give us a new life. And we promise to live for you. We will live for you. We pray these things in your name of love and power and grace and mercy and salvation.